This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Sensor. As much as we here at the Word of the Week love language, knowledge, and pedantry, we have to admit that we aren't perfect linguistic angels ourselves. Mainly, we have to admit that because there are hundreds of you listening, and you all let us know whenever we fall from linguistic grace through some verbal faux pas, or lapsus linguae, or just duck something up. Sorry, autocorrect. And many of our smaller errors involve simple mispronunciations, and while our poor, put-upon producer has to bear the brunt of the blame for every verbal gaffe because he's the one speaking the part, the truth is there are two of us, and we both have our share of mistakes. As much as our writer and researcher rides our producer for the way he pronounces WOLF without an L in it, or when he screws up his vowels in basic romance languages, it was our writer who was responsible for the duchy mispronunciation. And we're not even discussing the great necromancer phonetic debate of 2018 that nearly led to the cancellation of the show. Necromancer. Necromancer? Necromancer. Necromancer. Who cares? The reason we bring up pronunciation is because, as we were reviewing magic items in the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide and jointly reminiscing about the days we used to spend leafing through those pages and deciding what cursed items to screw our players with in the Dungeon Du Jour we were working on and also trying to come up with an idea for an episode of the show, we came upon a group of four of our favorite magic items that brought back a delightful and guilty memory. Way back in the day, we were playing in a game run by our friend Nick. Nick had been playing at our table for a few years and decided he was ready to try his hand at running a game. He'd made his own dungeon, and he was ready to run us through it and prove he had what it took. We and our fellow players were exploring the dungeon and had entered an apparently empty room. The only thing of note in the room, Nick said, was a brazier sitting in the middle of the floor. A what? We said, holding back our immature middle school laughter. A brazier, he said. Just sitting there on the floor of the dungeon, we asked, now snickering. Yes, it's a magical brazier. After some hilarious back and forth, which we will not relate, he admitted he didn't know what the heck the thing actually was. He'd found it in the Dungeon Master's Guide and decided to give it to us as a magical treasure. And he opened the DMG to the appropriate page and pointed to the brazier of commanding fire elementals. Brazier, not brassier. A simple mistake to make if you've never seen the archaic word for an open pan or bowl used for burning coal or other fuel that comes from the word brass. But boy did we, and our fellow players, ever lay into Nick for that. We never let him live it down. But we're not talking about braziers today. 
maybe some other time. We're talking about another item in that same set. See, since the early days of D&D, there's been these four often overlooked workhorse sort of magical items that gave the user the ability to summon and command specific elemental creatures. There's the brazier of commanding fire elementals, the bowl of commanding water elementals, the stone of commanding earth elementals, and the censer of commanding air elementals. And that fourth one is the one that stood out most to us during our formative gamer years for two reasons. First, it was the only one of the four that had a cursed variant. The sensor of summoning hostile air elementals appeared indistinguishable from its counterpart except that the elementals it summoned were not under the control of the bearer, and they were violently, homicidally angry at being summoned. Obviously, as a young teenage GM, that idea filled us with glee. The second reason it stood out is because we had no idea what the heck a censor was. Which is why it was kind of unfair that we laid into Nick so heavily about the brazier. So let's look at the censor of controlling air elementals today and ask, what actually is a censor? That's C-E-N-S-E-R. Why would you use a censor in magical rituals? And for that matter, just what the heck actually is an elemental? And where did they come from? In fact, let's start there. These days, any fan of fantasy fiction can tell you that an elemental is a magical creature whose body is composed entirely of one element, and we're not talking about the elements on the periodic table here. We're not talking about cesium or argon or potassium or whatever. We're talking about the classical elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. And the creatures composed entirely of flesh and blood made from those elements, gnomes, undines, sylphs, and salamanders. What, you were expecting us to say something else? Oh, we know. The modern fantasy interpretation of elementals is that they are beings composed of pure earth, water, air, and fire. They are free-willed, destructive things, hostile by their nature, but they can be controlled. And in Dungeons and Dragons, they come from magical other realms, which are also entirely made of those same elements. Actually, Dungeons and Dragons elementals are more complicated than that. Back when E. Gary Gygax wrote the original Dungeons & Dragons white box in 1974, sure, there were just four of the things. The ones you'd expect. And they were basically beasts composed of the appropriate element. They were mobile rock creatures, free-willed whirlwinds, standing waves of water, and masses of living fire. But other elementals started to appear as D&D evolved. As the cosmos of D&D grew more complicated, and new elemental realms appeared between the existing ones, new elementals also began to appear. These included para-elementals, which were fusions of two elements like magma, ice, steam, and ooze, and they included quasi-elementals, which were formed of elements infused with so-called positive or negative energy, and included elementals of lightning, mineral, radiance, steam, ash, dust, salt, and vacuum. 
And then other creatures started to appear, like elemental larvae and elemental weirds, which were basically just elementals, but different. But elementals really got their due in 1985, when Gary Gygax and game designer Frank Mincer teamed up to produce a series of modules known collectively as the Temple of Elemental Evil, which is, to this day, recognized as one of the best series of Dungeons & Dragons adventures ever, and which has been sequelized, expanded, republished, and converted many times over. Now, the Temple of Elemental Evil received a great reception for a number of reasons. Apart from offering a great dungeon crawl in the form of the actual temple itself, and apart from introducing the cult of the Elder Elemental Eye, and apart from introducing the villainous Zugtmoy, what really set it apart was its initial setting, the village of Hamlet. And it's a good thing its setting was so intriguing because for six years, that's all there was to the adventure. See, in 1979, Gygax had published an adventure module called The Village of Hamlet. It was a great introductory D&D module. Players started as penniless, down-on-their-luck, first-level adventurers who arrived at the titular village seeking their fortune. Eventually, they'd explored the ruins of a nearby castle, ousted some dangerous bandits, and established themselves as heroes in the town. And that town would serve as a home base as the heroes investigated the clues that the bandits were part of a much larger threat to the region. That would lead them, ultimately, to the ruined Temple of Elemental Evil, a horde of evil denizens trying to reclaim it, and an imprisoned demon queen in the temple's basement. But Hamlet was actually already pretty corrupted by the whole evil thing. Many of the people who lived there were secretly agents of evil and chaos. Or just jerks. And so, gradually, the pastoral town revealed a sinister side. A great gateway to a long adventure. But the long adventure didn't come. The follow-up, the part with the actual temple and all that cool stuff, should have been published soon thereafter. But it wasn't. Gygax kept delaying the release of the rest of the adventure. Now, part of the reason was that he was unhappy with the design of the temple and kept fixing it. That's because he was experimenting with random dungeon design, and as anyone who has played any procedurally generated dungeon crawler can tell you, random dungeons are garbage. The problem was that as the follow-up kept getting delayed, Gygax was moving farther and farther from actually designing games. He was getting more involved with the management of TSR. He eventually had to establish a design department at TSR to produce creative content because he just didn't have the time. But he was unwilling to let them have the Temple of Elemental Evil. And then Gygax had a falling out with his business partners, the Brothers Bloom. And the Blooms were taking control of his company and pushing Gary aside. Then in 1984, some major financial problems hit the company hard and the Blooms found their position substantially weakened. Gary returned, wrested some control back, and pledged to publish five new major products to get the company back on track. Among them was the Complete Temple of Elemental Evil Adventure, a four-part super-adventure which included a reprint of the original Village of Hamlet. And he tapped Frank Mincer to help him finish the product. And the product was a huge success. But we digress. 
Elementals as D&D and other popular fantasy media portray them don't really exist. Well, mythologically speaking, that's not what they're really about. In fact, elementals aren't really mythological creatures at all. They are, believe it or not, an attempted scientific explanation for the origins of mythical creatures. Yes, you heard us right. And that brings us around to Paracelsus. Paracelsus was a doctor and an alchemist, and he was quite a prominent figure in the development of Renaissance medicine. He was born in Switzerland in 1493 as Philippus Ariolus Theophrastus Bonbastus von Hohenheim. His father was a poor chemist and doctor himself, but because his father was teaching at a prominent school called the Bergschule, Paracelsus was able to study there as well. And he was fascinated with lots of different things. Medicine, obviously, but also metallurgy and smelting and transmutation and the idea that you could use chemicals to treat illnesses. But Paracelsus was also somewhat disillusioned by the elitist medical establishment of the time. After he graduated from the University of Vienna, he rejected a lot of what he'd learned. Things like how the movements of the stars and planets influenced human health. And he took the nickname Paracelsus to indicate he was better than Celsus, beyond Celsus. Who was Celsus? Well, that would be Aulus Cornelius Celsus, a first century Roman doctor who established a lot of the medical theories in practice in the medieval period. After leaving college, Paracelsus traveled across Europe and even into Russia and Arabia and Israel, and he dedicated himself to learning everything he could from everyone. He respected all knowledge equally. He assumed that the crazy old midwife or hedge witch with her weird herbs actually knew a thing or two about treating illnesses, even though established doctors of the time would call that insane. He assumed the common barber actually knew about blood and body fluids, even though he'd never been to medical school. And he was especially enamored of alchemy. He devoted himself to looking for medical treatments in the latent forces of nature, as he called them. And he was very successful. He was the first doctor to clinically describe syphilis and to treat it with mercury. He figured out that miners got sick from inhaling metal fumes, and he recognized goiter as being caused by a mineral imbalance and treated it with mineral supplements. But not all of his ideas were spot on. He also thought that you could cure someone with diluted forms of the things that made them sick, and thus became the father of homeopathic quackery. And he also thought gnomes and undines must be real, since so many people believed in them. And that's where our concept of elementals comes from. See, according to Paracelsus, since so many people told stories about mystical creatures, there must be something to them. But what? How could they exist? Well, they must be flesh and blood to exist at all, but they must also be fundamentally different from humans and he theorized that each of those weird other creatures had flesh and blood composed of just one element. Gnomes, which included brownies and elves, were made of carbon, the element of earth. Undines, which included mermaids in the mythical penguin, were made of hydrogen, the element of water. Salamanders, the fiery lizard creatures, were made of nitrogen, the element of fire. And finally, sylphs, wind spirits from the fairylands atop the highest peaks, were made of oxygen, the element of air. 
and it was thus Paracelsus who brought together the idea of mythical creatures of various stripes with the elemental theories of alchemy. And gradually that evolved into the idea of creatures composed of fire, water, air, and earth alone. So that explains elementals. But what the heck is a sensor? Well, this one's a bit easier, and you may know what it is already. Either because you looked it up years ago, or because you are a Catholic, or a Buddhist, or part of the Shinto faith, or Chinese, or Hindu, because it turns out that we were kind of the odd ones out when it came to not knowing what a sensor is. A sensor, also called a thurible, is a vented container for the burning of incense. They can either be freestanding, or they can be suspended from a chain, and these days... The word censer is usually used specifically for an incense burner that's intended for a spiritual or religious purpose. Otherwise, it's just called an incense or perfume burner. Now, incense has been around a long time, and it has long been associated with spiritual, mystical, and religious rites. Incense is primarily composed of grains of resin mixed with spices that burns with a fragrant odor. Powdered incense can be sprinkled on burning coal or other fuels. Incense can also be caked together or coated in a fuel source to allow it to burn on its own. For example, in the form of incense cones or incense sticks. The earliest incenses were made of resin extracted from trees found in the Arabian and Western African coasts. And they were very popular in ancient Egypt. These incenses were little more than balls of tree resin. They were often burned during ceremonies to the gods, especially those that involved preparing the dead for burial. Apart from counteracting the foul odors that are involved in preparing a dead human for internment, it was believed that the fragrant smoke would also drive off evil spirits, appease the gods, and carry the soul of the departed away. The Babylonians picked up the use of incense from the Egyptians, and they thought the fragrant smoke would carry their prayers and appeals to the gods above. And the early Israelites adopted the practice of using incense in their ceremonies around the 5th century BCE. But they did eventually drop the practice. In India, incense was used in much the same way the Babylonians used it, and it found its way into formal Buddhist practices as well. Interestingly, there are a number of reasons for its use in Buddhist practices, and different sects of Buddhism have their own individual reason for burning it. It can be used to cleanse and purify a space, it can be used to clear the mind and create a mood conducive to Buddhist rites, or it can have a symbolic purpose, such as burning three sticks to represent the three jewels of Buddhism. The Buddha himself, the natural laws of the world called Dharma, and the Buddhist community called Sanja. Here in the West, we're probably most familiar with the use of incense and censers or thuribles in the context of Catholic rites. Now, initially, Incense burning wasn't a part of Christian ceremonies. There's no evidence of it in the first four centuries CE. And it's hard to say when exactly it became a part of church rituals. Though incense itself was mentioned as being present in temples in various places in the Gospels of the New Testament. Its use seems to have first been formalized as part of the liturgies of St. James and St. Mark, which date back to about the 5th century. And a Roman ordo from the 7th century that's a sort of shorthand list of ceremonies and rites and bullet points about how they are supposed to be done, a Roman ordo describes the priest using a censer to burn incense on his approach to the altar in certain ceremonies. 
In modern Catholic ceremonies, relics, altars, and other sacred objects, including the remains of the dead, are incensed. That is, grains of incense are burned in a censer and spread about the object. Now, when we say grains of incense, we're mostly referring to resin, or rather, rosin. Because now, we have to confess a little verbal faux pas of our own. Let's talk about resin and rosin. Resin is a viscous substance that hardens with treatment or age. It generally doesn't dissolve in water, but usually is soluble in alcohol. It's basically a polymer that won't dissolve in water and is naturally an extremely thick, glutinous liquid that can harden. Natural resin comes from plants. For example, pine sap is a resin. But resins should not be confused with gums, which are similar, but do interact with water. Eh, we're getting needlessly technical here. The reason we want to discuss resin is because, apart from being the primary component of most incenses, the word resin and the word rosin are easily confused. To the point where we hear at the word of the week, well, half of us, we don't want our producer blamed for this one, always assumed that they were alternative pronunciations of the same word. And that rosin was the proper pronunciation of resin due to a fluke of the French language from which both words come. And we were so sure of that that we even argued vehemently with another gamer a few years ago when we insisted on pronouncing the names of various magical resins from the video game Dark Souls as rosin. Which prompted the other gamer to ask us why we kept calling resin rosin and led to us insisting it was the proper pronunciation because French is a stupid language. Or, or something. Well, it turns out we were wrong. But not completely wrong. They are two different words, but they mean almost the same thing. Resin refers to the general class of compounds. Rosin refers to resin in its hardened form. A lump of hardened resin is rosin. And also, to rub a lump of hardened resin on something like a violin string to coat it with the stuff, that's called rosining. Rosin can also be a verb. So, given our own insistence that rosin and resin were the same word, and given that we didn't even know what a sensor was until we looked it up, Perhaps we should cut our producer a break when he says wolf and mispronounces ancient Nwahat words because he forgets you don't pronounce the last letter. Why is it even there? And maybe we shouldn't have given Nick such a hard time all those years ago. But come on, he put a brassiere in a dungeon. A brassiere! This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>